0: You are listening to The Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with The Wealth Formula Podcast. First of all, reminding you that there is all sorts of resources for you at wealthformula.com, including the ability to sign up for our Wealth Formula Accredited Investor Club. So what does it mean to be an accredited investor anyway? An accredited investor is not something that you sign up for or you train for or anything else. It's either you are one or you're not, sort of like being pregnant. And what that means is, in the case of the accredited investor, if you make $200,000 a year, uh, $300,000 if filing jointly or you have a net worth of $1 million outside of your personal residence, then you are an accredited investor and you should sign up for the Investor Club on WealthFormula.com. Now, also, there's an opportunity to get a free book there. There's my uh, book, The Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth. That was number one seller on Amazon. You can also just text 44222 and get a free copy of that if you text 44222 and type in Wealth Formula, one word. Now, um, one thing I do want to say is that last week we had this um, podcast uh, with Tiga Tawari, and I wanted to promote his newsletter because I'm a big fan of his newsletter. And the newsletter is, um, you know, uh, it's about digital cryptocurrency. And I have been a subscriber since 2017. And um, it is really good. It's high quality stuff, really good information. It's not the only source I use for cryptocurrency and digital currency, but it is one of the ones that I think really gives you a a significant sort of great overview. And the majority of the um, uh, uh, assets that uh, Tika recommends I think are high quality. And I think his idea of asymmetric risk and, you know, allocations of very small allocations into these, you know, a couple hundred bucks, whatever, and seeing what pops is a really good idea for some people. Uh, The problem was that there was some, you know, the Palm Beach confidential copy, you know, the sales stuff that goes along with it is a little bit over the top. And I talked to Tika about this and Tika says, yeah, my own friends make fun of me. It's not like he writes this stuff, guys. We've talked about this before. Newsletters, like anything else, are things that, you know, people try to sell, right? And that's how they make a living. doesn't mean that they're good or they're bad. Sales letters, uh, you know, have to be sold, right? It, or, I mean, these newsletters have to be sold. And basically, uh, the copy that was sent out in, um, you know, by Palm Beach Confidential, which I forwarded, which I also put on disclaimers about, saying, hey, guys, don't read, you know, the copy is really cheesy, This is a two or three, you know, I've been part of this newsletter for two or three years. It's high quality. Even despite that, I send it and I get people telling me, oh, this is terrible, blah, blah, blah. And I just got to say, guys, come on, lighten up. All right. Here's the thing. There's multiple assets that I have invested in that were in Palm Beach Confidential that resulted in significant gains, like serious gains, right? Now, unfortunately for me, I chose not to sell. Had I sold... Uh, when I should have, I would have made uh, a lot of money off of those investments. Um, but I didn't, but the bottom line is I was given direction on things that worked and all I'm doing when I, you know, pass on this information is giving you an opportunity to do something that I did too. But I think the moral of the story is though, that you can't, um, you know, some of the, the emails I get are about how it's so salesy. And the same people I know who are sending me those are buying into other things that are incredibly salesy, too. So it's like pick your poison. It's, I don't care what the sales message is. What I'm really interested in is knowing what the underlying um, you know, information or the underlying asset is itself. And that's, what, that's why I felt like it was OK to promote Tika. And uh, that's my story. So I'll probably do it again. But next time I promote Tika's newsletter, I'll just write an email myself telling you about my experience. Uh, rather than sending his copy, now, um, now let's talk a little bit about today's topic, okay? Which is you know the economy, multifamily real estate. There's clearly a lot of fear in the heart of investors in the equity markets uh, and real estate alike. Um, you know, you hear these talk, uh, whether it's on the news or whatever, and social media, uh, etc., about trade wars and recessions. They're everywhere, right? Um, the problem is that you know you got some of these guys who've been saying the thing same thing for four years now, but um, meanwhile for me I'm investing more in multifamily real estate than I ever have right now this year alone. Um, I, I was probably my biggest year. It is my biggest year investing in multifamily real estate, uh, and in fact I am investing my 80 year old father's money in the same offerings. Right, so. That's how confident I feel. I mean, literally, I mean, I'm, I can invest my own money and lose my own money, but you know, I'm investing my dad's money in the same deals. And they're the same deals that people are seeing in our credit investor, investor club. Um, So if you're wondering what it is, so why, why am I investing so much right now? Well, lots of reasons and here, are just a few, right? So number one, I can't time the market. You know, there's a podcast echo chamber that you know I've talked about before where it's like everybody says the same thing and, you know, you you hear it so many times you start thinking it's true, right? Um, There's this podcast echo chamber that's been going on for at least four years now telling you that, you know, you got to be afraid, uh, that you got to be buying gold. um, And, you know, I mean, that hasn't worked out that great for people over four years. And since then, I've been out of, uh you know over the course of those 4 years i've been in and out of multiple deals and i've created you know a fair amount of wealth during that period and if we do have a recession in the next year which i don't doubt the question is well so what does it have to be a bloodbath i mean 10 years ago it was a bloodbath in 2008 but that was a once in a lifetime thing right i mean most of the time recessions are things that happen You hear about it on the news. Oh, yeah, there's a recession. We were in a recession about, you know, three months ago uh, or, you know, like a, a we were in a recession and it started about, you know, six months ago and it lasted for four months. I mean, that's that's the way recessions used to be. The other thing is the average length between recessions is about five and a half years. So if you enter an investment today, by the time you're ready to sell and complete that sort of, you know, exit for your investment you may be back in the entire you know in the same part of the cycle again up high in the cycle right so you could have gone through an entire cycle of recession and then recovery and then you could be back in a in a, in a time when asset prices are <clears throat> people are saying they're elevated again you just can't predict it so what's the point so that's number 1 i can't time the market number 2 i only invest in quality assets that are in quality markets okay so what does that mean well I like multifamily real estate located in high-growth areas. Now, if there's a strong population growth and um, jobs uh, that are happening organically today, then in my view, there's no reason that demographic trend in particular should continue with or without a recession over the next few years, right? So you've got a market like Dallas, for example, And it's, you know, kicking butt or or Houston or some of these other markets that are just killing it. Okay. There's a recession. Maybe there's a slowdown. All right. But what happens in three, four years, those same markets are, are killing it again. Right. Even if there's a recession tomorrow. So, so bottom line is what can you do? You can't time it. You got to keep investing, right? Invest in those really good, high quality markets, uh, where, you know, there's true organic growth. Don't go to those tertiary markets where people are only there because they're chasing yield, right? Uh, nothing against like you know, Oklahoma city, but it's a classic example. People going over there because they think they're going to, you know, get a little bit better cap rates. But the reality is the, any growth that there is in that any, any cap rate compression that you're seeing there is really, it's not organic at all, right? All it is is people chasing yield. There's not something inherently happening like there is in Dallas and in and, and Houston where these markets are truly transforming, right? So you have to just stick to quality markets, quality assets. And if I do that, if I do that, I don't worry too much about, you know, losing money, right? I don't worry about losing money. I don't think I will, even if there's a recession. Chances are I'm going to continue making money. All right, so Number three, the third reason why I'm still investing a lot into real estate. Uh, Well, this goes back. Let's follow up on the question of what makes me so confident that I'm not going to lose money. Well, the basic thesis of my investing is to not buy and hope. Buy and hope is not for me. That's not what we want to do. And for those people in Investor Club, you know that I'm a believer in this idea of forced equity, you know? of driving value into properties, driving net operating income. Those are the strategies that I'm interested in. I'm not interested in buying and hoping. That means that when we drive up net operating income, we're di- dynamically decompressing our own property cap rates. And then that gives us a bigger cushion in the event of any slowdown. So just an ex- as an example, you know, we work a uh, with a group in particular in investor club and that group uh, you know, our average returns uh, over the last six years have averaged 30% annually. Right. So, okay. So this has been in a market that has trajected up, but that 30% is not just because the market went up. It's also because of massive amount of value add. So you're way above pro formas in these properties. Okay. Okay. But what that tells me, you know, the 30% annualized returns is we're doing something right and we have a lot of cushion uh, before we would even worry in the least about losing money. So that's, that's, the, that's what I would tell you there. Uh, number four, I believe in the volume averaging approach, okay? Now, this goes back to the fact that I cannot predict market cycles. I don't like missing bull markets, um, and in reality... That I would rather uh, have potentially less growth and capital preservation in, you know, in the case of a recession or some sort of pullback, uh, I'd rather have that than negative growth, which you would get potentially in the, you know, by keeping your money in the bank or in the stock market. So again, to me, multifamily real estate, in particular, uh, as a recession resilient uh, type of thing, uh, in the right hands, is the place for me to be. As long as I invest in the right deals with the right operators, I just keep deploying capital, right? That's what I got to keep doing. I got to deploy capital. And eventually, that's just going to average out. I'm going to come out where I think I'm going to come out. Now, finally, the fifth reason. The fifth reason I'm investing in so much multifamily right now, frankly, is that, you know, I'm literally betting my life, my financial life uh, on a the group of people that I'm investing with right now because I believe in them so much and that that's one of the reasons I'm deploying more capital than I ever have. You know, the longer I'm in this investing game, the more I'm convinced it has more to do with the team than the asset itself, right? It's really about execution. It's really about, you know, taking an asset. You could have the same asset and two completely different set of hands. One of them is going to come out making you thirty percent annualized returns, and one of them is going to maybe, maybe even lose you money. Who knows? The bottom line is it matters, and it matters a tremendous amount. And the fact that I'm putting so much money into these properties, and again, these are all Investor Club things. So, you know, if you're uh, if you're wondering where I'm deploying all this capital, you, know, you have to be an accredited investor. But Investor Club, those deals that people are in that, that's where I'm putting money. So I'm putting so much money, am I worried about it? No, I'm not. I don't think there is anything near 2008 coming up in the next couple years. But even if it were, I feel like I'm in a very safe position with an extremely competent team, you know, Um, and I think I'll be in as good a shape as anyone else. So that's my story, right? Now, do I sound too optimistic? I would say that, frankly, I'm being realistic because I am factoring in the possibility and probably the likelihood, in my view, just from hearing what I'm hearing, of a downturn. But understand that, um, you know, even though I believe that it's likely that there will be some kind of downturn in the next year or two years or whatever, I believe in the long term, specifically in the next decade, that I think it's going to be a tremendous uh, economy. I believe the next decade will be the roaring 20s, just like guys from uh, ITR Economics called it on my podcast not too long ago. If you're curious about that one, look for the one that says the roaring 20s and the depression of the 30s, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. But I am completely on board with that plan. I think the 20s are going to rock it. And why in the world would I sit here and try to time out a speed bump you know something that i think that we're well prepared for the way we're investing right now i mean i don't want to miss any of that roaring 20s i don't want to miss any of that anyway that said i'm always listening to what other economists have to say what other smart people have to say in fact on this week's wealth formula podcast i have a highly respected economist who specializes in multifamily real estate his name is Ryan Davis and he definitely knows what he's talking about so make sure With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is an economist by the name of Ryan Davis. Ryan is Director of Research and Client Services at Witten Advisors. Before that, Ryan was Vice President of Royal Bank of Canada's Capital Markets Division, where he was responsible for originating, underwriting, and closing multifamily and commercial mortgages for inclusion in CMB pools and for the sale to Fannie and Freddie. In other words, he is an economist who really understands real estate, which is exactly the type of economist that makes sense for us to talk to. Ryan, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast.
1: Well, thank you for having me. Glad to be here.
0: Yeah, and so first of all, I just want to say Ryan's going to be joining us uh, at the Wealth Formula event, September 27th to 28th. I think we're uh, probably—I'm pretty sure—we're—we're sold out. But you can go to wealthformulaevents.com and check that out, Ryan. Let's let's talk a little bit about you and what Witten Advisors just uh, it, what it does, just to get some perspective in terms of what your perspective is.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So just a little bit back on me about me and why I'm an economist. Now is that I rode the wave of the you know real estate boom in the mid you know early to mid two thousands, and then was at you know RBC Capital Markets and remember when the securitization markets froze up. I remember our satellite offices, you know, being let go throughout the year. And then one day I came into work and sat down on my computer and then the black screen went, you know, it just went dark and they pulled me in and said, you know, we're going to have to, you know, let you go. And so kind of part of the reason why I became an economist is to try and understand that bigger picture. So, you know, what I experienced during that time frame, you know, doesn't ever happen again um, to, you know, know, on that widespread basis. And so I went back to grad school and then linked up with Witten Advisors almost seven years ago now. And what we do is we focus on multifamily fundamentals and what, more importantly, the drivers uh, of apartment markets uh, in the major markets across the country so from the west coast to northeast to southeast texas you know, et cetera. and how we add value is we approach it from a top-down approach so how is you know, the, the economy and demographic trends you know how is that playing out across local markets and kind of just a little bit of background on our firm ron whitten has been in the apartment research business for 40 plus years right And he was a pioneer in data for multifamily. and so back when And, you know, it was amazing to have rent growth for Dallas. (laughs) You know, he was one of the first ones to to do that. And so, yeah, he built up MPF Research and sold it to RealPage back in 2000 plus range. And then... We, you know, took some time off and pulled uh, CEOs and executives of apartment companies around the country and said how could I add value and one of the options was be a nitty-gritty you know, data research provider another one is kind of a feasibility study and the third option was to you know, be more of a, an advisor and not so much a dot producer but a dot connector and so what we try and do is make sense of all the economic data and what that means for apartments going forward and kind of the overwhelming response from that survey was, do not give us any more data. I mean, that was back in 2002 right. uh, from executives. And so uh, that's how uh, the Witten Advisors is, has started. And so our clients are nationwide developers, private equity groups, local you know value add players, uh, some some debt uh, companies uh, as well. So a wide, wide spectrum.
0: Got it. So, uh, you know, understanding your perspective on that. And again, it's, you know, it's you know, in in terms of what we do as a my my investor group does, and we're heavily into multifamily. This is really helpful. You know, and a lot of people are worried right now because um, a lot of the the things you hear in the press and and you know um, the the oncoming recession, um, if that's going to happen. First of all, I guess the question for me is like. You know, do you? What's your guys' perspective from as an economist? I mean, do you do you agree that this happens in the next few months? Um, and if it does, uh, what does that look like broadly for most high paid professionals? And the reason I ask that question is, I think that what's tricky is this has been one of the longest expansions. I think it is the longest expansion in U.S. history. It's ten years, and for a number of us, even in our forties, I mean, we we don't know much in our adult, you know, financial lives outside of the downsides of what happened in 2008. But recession doesn't necessarily mean zombie apocalypse, right? So I'm trying to get, I'm trying to put this in perspective. If do you guys think there's a recession? If there's a recession, what does it look like? Is it something that you hear about? There's something that goes off in the hills, uh, you know, in the industrial manufacturing sectors. Can you give us some color on that?
1: Sure, I mean one thing is obvious is that we're living in a recession obsession world right now. Right. I mean, all of the headlines are just focused on yield curve inversion. I kind of our quick takeaway is that we don't not expect a downturn. It's a slowdown for sure, but no, you know, imminent, imminent recession lurking around the corner. And you know, right. our favorite metrics to look at are the the 2 and 10-year uh, treasury spreads. And that inverted for you know, several days, but it's now you know, back to the, the the positive. But more importantly, it's looking at that over taking out the short term gyrations, looking at the monthly averages, of you know, the spread between those those two uh, uh, bonds, and that has a very you know powerful uh, record of you know leading uh, recessions, and we're not uh, you know near that right, you know right now. And so even if the that spread inverted for a full month beginning, you know, let's say this happens to be this month, then it it generally takes about, on you know, on average 16 to 18 months for a recession to, to come around. And so still, um, even if that Spectrum does invert, then we still got some time. Then, in addition, there's the argument that this time really is different. I mean, you're always a little bit nervous making that statement, but still, you know, 10 year treasuries, there's a very good arg- argument that after, uh, you know, quantitative easing, then also negative bond yields across the the globe that there's a demand for u.s 10-year treasuries which is weighing down at the same time the uh, deficit's being uh, financed by short-term debt which is pushing up you know short-term rates and so there's an argument that, yeah, that maybe this time really is different. And on top of that, you know, back in 2008, the Federal Reserve changed how they do, you know, monetary policy. And so we have, you know, over a trillion dollars in excess reserves in the banking system right now. And so even if there were to be a recession, the capital markets are very healthy. And so it would look to us like it'd be more like an, uh, an early 90s, more of a rolling recession where mm-hmm. it'd be some, you know, layoffs but not as deep not what we experienced during the tech right not the you know, housing bust or you know great financial crisis and so it would be a pretty quick you know v-shaped uh, recovery that said i mean w- uh, we don't expect that but job growth is slowing the economy is slowing and it's not due to anything fundamentally wrong with the economy it's just due to demographics and sure. we don't, we don't have, you know, this big pool of unemployed people out there. And then further, the baby boomers are, are retiring. They're just being replaced by young adults entering the workforce. And so for the first time uh, during an economic cycle, we don't have this big wave of young people that are, you know, being able to, you know, generate the big job growth gains, yeah, et cetera. And so just those sheer factors are going to limit our growth rate going forward.
0: Right. So, Does a—okay, so say there is, you know, some sort of recessionary activity. If it's isolated to—you know, I've heard, you know, another group that I uh, talk—that I I follow is ITR Economics. You know, they've they've predicted probably, um, you know, slowdown and likely recession, but in very specific uh, areas, like the industrial, manufacturing part of the market, Um, and if that does happen— I, it may be a silly question, but does it have to result in a massive stock market correction? And does a stock market correction necessitate a residential real estate correction? Do, do you see what I'm saying? Like To me, it's like that's what I'm trying to figure out is, OK, to me, the, what I'm hearing from economists who even think that there is a recession imminent is that it's not all sectors. It's specific to some very you know, manufacturing industrial sectors.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, we've already experienced, you know, the oil and gas, you know, downturn, yeah. oil prices cratered, and there's a big, you know, concern that, you know, companies were over levered, and that was going to spill over in the bond markets and it had this cascading effect, you right. know, capital markets and the economy. No, we, you know, weathered that storm. And so I think that, you know, balance sheets and the banking system in a just a much better place. And so sure. there's you know, we can weather any, you know, downturn in the industrial manufacturing sectors or, you know, any, you know, slowdown exacerbated by, you know, trade policy in certain you right. know, sectors, you know, et cetera. And so I think we're in a very, you know, healthy position. And so, no, I, w- I would not think that that would, you know, it must lead to, uh, you know, a correction in the, the stock market at all.
0: At yeah, all. right. Now, as we often hear about, like, you know, the housing market, Right, the housing market. However, uh, when you think about what that is, it's like single-family houses, it's apartment buildings, it's the development space. When things happen, do these markets tend to correlate with one another? Because I, you know, to me, it's it's also when I look at I'm here over in Santa Barbara, you know, when people are buying six seven million dollars single-family homes, um, you know, and, and that's not even the expensive ones. They How is that correlated to working, you know, working class uh, apartment buildings in, say, Dallas or, uh, you know, what's the correlation there?
1: Yeah, I mean, there are some. They are somewhat correlated because you know, if there are fewer jobs, there are fewer paychecks for right. people to you know pay rent or pay the mortgage, and so in that case, you know, if there's some kind of evaporation of housing, you know, demand in general, then then they were are you know correlated. But you know, the kind of as we've seen this cycle, uh, I mean the. Single-family construction and apartment construction have gone the uh, the opposite way, where multifamily was really quick to you know r- ramp up, where single-family has lagged for, you know, but all throughout, uh, you know, the cycle, we're just now getting back to, you know, levels that are, you know, relatively normal. And then just looking at the demographics of single mm-hmm. family and apartment renters is that they're completely different. And, you know, in I'll go further than that, just looking at single family. So you can break that into owners and single family rentals, which is single right. family rentals. That's the hot topic, you know, of the du jour. And, you know, those demographics are much more aligned. And so any, increase in the home ownership rate that's really due to people you know going from single family rentals to single family home ownership now there is some you know apartment you know folks that are you know aging and getting married and moving out and you know buying homes but you know that's relative been relatively uh you know subdued just to people getting married later having kids later Yeah, yeah yeah And so, yeah, there there is some correlation, just because kind of all industries are tied to the overall economy. But there are some very, uh, you know, drastic differences. And then, you know, also to that point, going back to the recession question, is that we, by our estimates, we have one million fewer housing units just overall than we would normally have at this point in the cycle. And so we haven't overbuilt. We aren't over our skis as we were in prior recessions in terms of housing. And so Mm -hmm. that would, uh, you know, kind of indicate that real estate might, you know, especially residential real estate might outperform during a downturn.
0: Yeah, I and mean, I guess that goes to my approach. My personal approach is to invest right now. You know, I focus on good value add assets. Maybe not uh, developments. Really, not my thing. Um, but specifically in high growth markets, I like multifamily real estate because of exactly what you said. Then you know, people got to live somewhere, right? And so what you're telling me is the numbers actually back up that you know that instinctual. Uh, sense of that's where there's some security
1: yeah that 's right i mean you can 't sleep online right now right. you know in the apartment space you know there, there are some pockets of weakness where cer- certain submarkets where all the equity is wanting to be you know in this live work play environment And we 've seen you know four projects go up on, on the you know, same intersection, and so those are all competing against each other but then you know as you get out into you know the suburbs and the older properties that there they're, you know, much more you know, nimbyism out there that fight new development, and so those have been relatively insulated from you know, the the wave of, uh, you know, supply that is hitting many areas of certain markets.
0: Right. So, I mean, for me personally, that would be also, you know, stay away from potentially like tertiary markets because it seems like there is this desire among investors, maybe not the smart money, but certainly I think um, amateur syndicators, things like that to go into markets like say in Oklahoma City or something like that, where there may not be true organic growth, but, you know, people are chasing yield. Um, my, I'm, I'm curious what your take on this is because my inclination is, okay, I'd still pay a little bit more just to say in a mar- market like Dallas, Fort Worth or Houston, where it's got organic growth, got a lot of business activity, you know, massive net population. Um, is that, is that kind of like what, 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 you would say is perhaps a safer approach?
1: Yeah, I would tend to agree with that. And in part, it depends on your time horizon as an investor and just in your overall investment strategy, but kind of, you know, looking at a Oklahoma City, you know, you may be able to get higher going in yield there, but you may, you know, uh, you know that may degrade, you know, over time, but then more importantly on the exit, you know, is the capital going to be there to, you know you know so you can sell that uh investment you know it's there it's going to be there in the major you know markets even you know in a you know potential you know downturn and so um, yeah, I would generally agree with that. Uh, in terms of some of the high-growth markets, you know, those are also the ones that are seeing the highest growth in supply. And so you think of you know the Austins and Charlotte's and Raleigh—phenomenal demand stories, right? I mean, the economies right. are humming. Young adults want to move there, et cetera. That's mm-hmm. also attracting a lot of capital. <laughs> and yeah. so, in terms of investment horizon, there may be some period—a you know, period of one to two years—where you have to fight through some. Mm-hmm pricing power, but then you know, over the long term, those should outperform.
0: What are your some of your favorite markets? Uh you just mentioned a few there. there are markets that people kind of know about. But if you say, okay, you know, you you talk about Dallas, say like 10, 15 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, and people wouldn't have really thought of Dallas as being like a huge growth market. Now it is. Um what 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 potential markets do you see out there that maybe people aren't looking at? When you look at the numbers.
1: Yeah, no, it's interesting. Dallas, I mean, used to be viewed as a tertiary market. I mean, beginning of the cycle, right? Now Uh everyone wants it. But yeah, in terms of, you know, overall, uh, you know, health, we love Fort Worth, the Western side of the DFW. Um, Metroplex. Uh, Dallas should remain strong, but it's going to just you know, kind of average rate of performance. And then Austin, I mean, uh, we think that Austin should underperform over the next three years. With, and it, the story is completely due to supply. Austin was one of the first markets to really get cranked up. And the number mm-hmm. of units being built there, 8, 10, now 12,000 units on a year, yearly basis. And just looking at apartment, how much the apartment stock in Austin has expanded it's expanded by about a third since the start of this uh, cycle, and then by the, the end of 2022, it should expand by almost you know, over 50 percent. Or so wow. this leads all of our markets, and so it, again, there's, there's just with so much new product coming online, and yeah, you know, that would mean a third of all the apartment units in Austin have been built in the last you know 15 years at the end of 2022. Yeah. And so, yeah, you know, the, there's some you know nuances across markets. Yeah, uh, you know, Houston had a pop after Harvey and you know, deliveries uh, uh, you know, slow to a crawl, but they were really fast to, to ramp up. I mean, if I showed you the starts, uh, uh, Graph on Austin or Houston, you would be just shocked at how quickly developers ramped up and stuck shovels in the ground. Then looking at the 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 southeast, I mean, we like uh, Atlanta and Charlotte, and a little bit of the Austin story with you know kind of more supply pressure. Raleigh's a little bit uh, higher just because you know less supply. Nashville, we think we're past peak supply. I mean, there's. Uh, capital flocked there. You know, three, four years ago, we saw a bunch of new projects coming online. They've all got, gotten absorbed, for sure. I mean, the, the demand right. is there, and that's the story across mar- all markets right now is that the demand is there for apartments. Now, you might have to you know, suffer in terms of you know, rent growth, uh, for a little bit, but the demand um, yeah, is there. And so Atlanta, uh, we, we like Atlanta and then you know, the, the markets in, the, in, in Florida as well. But then also looking in the inner West, we love Vegas. We love Riverside. We love Phoenix. And that just speaks to the affordability migration coming from coastal California. You spoke to that affordability you know, issue that the, the migration numbers you know it, the number of people that are moving into the Inland Empire, Las Vegas, and Phoenix from California. I mean, it's it's staggering, and those three markets are the mm-hmm. Vegas and Phoenix are the you know, leaders in terms of rent growth, you know, ramping up to eight percent in both of those markets on a market wide basis. I mean, that's n- nuts, though. And so, yeah.
0: so and- I'm curious about Vegas in particular. There, um, that's not one that necessarily has been on my radar. I mean, certainly Phoenix has. Vegas, um, is that demographic that's moving in there different than what it was, you know, cause to, obviously in 2008, it got destroyed, right? It got absolutely demolished. I mean, and so did, I mean, so did Phoenix, but Vegas was, you know, it was on the news. I mean, people going on bus rides, uh, through, through Vegas, um, you know, and mm-hmm. buying, buying houses for pennies on the dollar. Is that, a different demographic. I mean, certainly in Phoenix, it is a completely different market than, you know, 10 years Mm -hmm. later, but I I don't, can you talk about that real quick? Yeah.
1: I mean, it's, it's changed, you know, somewhat. I mean, still, you know, it's going to be a, you know, gaming, tourism, you know, focused economy, but yeah, it's, it's changed by, you know, more attracted to, you know, young, young people, that uh, then in addition to, you know, the, the strong, you know, demand and, you know, people wanting to, to move their magnets for, for, you know, migration is that supply. I mean, like you said, it just got crushed along with Phoenix and along with the Inland Empire. And so investors are gun-shy right now. And so that has led to just low levels of construction in all three of those markets. Well, Phoenix, you know, not, not so much anymore you know, in the past two years, it's finally, you know, began to catch up. But in Vegas and Riverside, this the amount of new projects being built are just minimal. And so that's being, you know, that's leading to increased uh, rent growth in, in those markets.
0: So, um, Let's just kind of do a little, uh, in, let's talk about just broadly speaking, next decade. And I'm just going to ask you to be, uh, you know, economist profit here. Um, why, I mean, I presume that you probably have a bias towards multifamily real estate to be there. Um, what do you think, what do you think over the next decade? Is it really the place to be because of demographics? Do you think there's other kinds of real estate that you like that might, you know, might be better or worse or just give us some color on that and from what your perspective is in the next decade.
1: Sure, yeah, and so just I'll preface it with that as an internal company policy, we do not invest in any sure. market, any developments. We have lots of public REIT clients, and so there's always you know, fear of insider information, and so yeah, we, just, yeah. we don't invest. And so we right. just want to be third party information. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And, all right. So with that that said, you know, going forward, we are bullish on multifamily for several factors. I think in the near term, if your you know investment thesis is you know we we expect a, a you know down. Downturn, then you know, multifamily is recession resilient. It's outperformed right. other property types in the prior you know, uh, downturns. And then, in addition, where multifamily really so- shines is in the early stages of the recovery with the short-term leases, able to recover you know very quickly. And so, just you yeah, in that kind of recession scenario, multifamily outperforms. Going forward, kind of the longer term, just in terms of the demographic drivers, and we look at the what's what we. Term the propensity to rent apartments, and basically that's the share of households that are choosing to live in five plus rentals. And if you look back, that that share has been increasing for four decades. <laughs> and there's some you know, ups and downs with the housing boom and bust, you know, et cetera. The you know, baby boomers becoming you know, young adults, you know, et cetera. But that share has been rising, and we do not think it will um, can you know, Um, you know, ebb or flatline even, we think it's still going to, you know, increase going forward. And that just speaks to lifestyle changes of, you know, people staying single for longer periods of time, waiting longer to have kids, yeah, et cetera, that just pushes people into rentals for longer, and many of which, you know, choose, you know, uh, apartments. And, you know, just in terms of the, you know, economy, um, we expect continued growth. Now it's not going to be the you know, three, four percent range that we've been accustomed to in prior cycles. It's going to be limited by labor force growth, which may be closer to half a percent, one percent going forward. So, yeah, yeah, we're we're going to you know, slow down, but still, um, you know, if you look, if you break job growth out into you know that you know from that aggregate number into you know the ages, you just that baby boomer cohort is retiring in droves and being replaced by a big 20 to 34 year old you know crowd well I mean, we're past peak millennial but still there's good growth in that you know age group and so that's just weighing down on the aggregate numbers but and so if you look in you know, kind of break that apart it's still very good for apartments and then in addition that people are living in apartments for for longer and so you have that you know Pe- you know, millennial group that is getting into their you know early 30s but they're going to stay in apartments for you know longer and so we just think that all of these trends are long term in nature and are not apt to change absent some you know change in federal policy where you know it increases home ownership or you know anything like that but still we think that you know going forward the demand is there and then as long as supply remains contained, which right now we've been about 350,000 units on a national basis uh, for the last three you know, years or so. And so we don't, we don't see that trending higher and higher just with where land costs are, construction costs, you know, labor, and now you know, tariffs on materials, et cetera. That's all just weighing on the economics of a profitable development deal. And so we think supply will be uh, relatively contained.
0: Fantastic. So Ryan, uh, you are going to join us, as I said, at the uh, end of this month in September in Dallas uh, and give us a great, uh, you know, great look at, uh, you know, what you're seeing around you. A Nice presentation. We're excited to have that. How else um, can we learn about what you guys are up to in the meantime?
1: Sure. Yeah, I mean, you can look at our website. We have a little blog called the Witten Advisory that we you know, post a, a, an excerpt from, you know, what we provide to our clients on an ongoing basis. Just you know, one, once a month, hey, here's a chart, and here's you know, so, some you know narrative and context uh, you know around it. So that's you know one way we. Do a lot of speaking engagements, so I don't know if you're lots of in Dallas, but also you know across the country. So you can look us up if um, yeah we're, we're speaking at a, an event. So that's one way, and then also just yeah you know, reaching out. Uh, go to our website, our email, and contact information is there. So happy to answer any any, converse, uh, any questions you have or just have conversations about about markets.
0: Ryan, thanks again for being on Wealth Formula Podcast.
1: You're welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed that uh, conversation. And uh, if you are a heavy multifamily investor like I am, it probably should give you a little bit of a, uh, you know, sense that you know you're on the right track. I think that uh, it's pretty much in line with kind of what I've been, you know, saying all along. I mean, listen, at the end of the day, if there's a little setback, I think what we have to be thinking about is, okay, capital preservation. All right, let's just hunker down and you know, our capital's in a safe place and safe hands. And when the economy turns, we'll make money. That's kind of the way I'm approaching it. So, you know, um, that's that that's kind of what my philosophy is. Now, let me just, uh, before we uh, wrap it up, just want to remind you of one thing, which is that we do have this uh, meetup coming up. It's Wealth 2.0, Dallas, Texas. And uh, Ryan will actually be one of the speakers there. Uh, he's going to do a really interesting conversation He's going to have a really interesting talk about uh, about the economy and multifamily real estate, which you're not going to want to miss, along with Tom Wheelwright, uh, Dave Steele, uh, Doug Ludmell, a bunch of really smart people. And then we're going to do a multifamily trip around Dallas and look at a bunch of properties we own in Investor Club. Check it out. Uh, you don't have to be an investor club. You don't have to be an accredited investor to come to this event, uh, wealthformulaevents.com. Um, is where it's at. I don't even know if there's any seats left. If there isn't, if it's sold out and you really, really want to come, shoot me an email, wealthformulaevents.com. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment see you next time buck joffrey here from Sapio with buck joffrey aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years it's already being done in lab animals so it's just a matter of time our challenge to be healthy enough for when that time comes as a former scientist and surgeon myself my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.